what would you think if I told you today we're going to talk about murder, sex, divorce, making empty promises, revenge, and self-serving love? You might think that we're going to watch a big soap opera together or one of these reality TV shows because these things form the plot lines for those programs. Why? Because those programs are based on real life, things that happen in real people's lives for sure. And uh, I'm going to say that these are indeed the topics that we're going to be talking about today. To recap, we have been looking at the extended teachings by Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, which have come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. It stretches from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And we have looked at the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, which contain what has come to be known as the Beatitudes. We then looked at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, where he uses the metaphors of salt and light to teach us about the kind of involvement and influence that his followers are to have in this present world. And finally, we looked at the main summary statement for the sermon, which is found in verses 17 through 20 of Matthew 5, in which Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it, to complete it, to bring about its intended purpose and culmination, and that the righteousness of his followers is to exceed that of those who follow the Old Testament commandments. Well, today we are entering into the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and we're beginning in verse 21 today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You can flip there with your Bible. Verses 21 through 48 of chapter 5, Jesus contrasts the greater righteousness that he is teaching with the righteousness described in the Old Testament. Jesus presents six of the moral teachings found in the Old Testament and how they were commonly applied and compares them with the way that he in, intends his followers to understand and apply these commands. Jesus begins each of these comparisons with the words, You have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. Something I want us to bear in mind as we look at what Jesus teaches us in these passages is that Jesus does not lower the morality bar to make it easier for us to make, make it over the bar, so to speak. He doesn't make the observation, it looks like people are having an especially difficult time with self-control. So I'm going to tell people that it's all right for them to have physical relations with another person if they really love them, regardless of whether they're married to that person or not. He doesn't say, I've noticed people are not always happy with the person that they're married to, so I'm going to tell them that my main concern for them is that they be happy. Go ahead, get a divorce if you want, because you deserve to be happy. And I want you to find that special someone who will be the love of your life. He doesn't say, I've seen people having difficulty being generous and kind toward people they don't like. So I'm going to tell them to clan up with your besties and take care of your own. 
Let others worry about themselves. Make sure that you're getting your fair share no matter what. No, Jesus doesn't say any of those things. Instead, Jesus helps us to understand the incredibly high standard of morality and holiness that God desires for us, and he makes no excuses or apologies for it. We don't want to lower God's standard to make it more comfortable for ourselves. Instead, we want to desire to know and understand God's holy standard and seek to live by it with the help of the Holy Spirit and leaning entirely on the grace of God in Jesus for our security and salvation. A quick side note, although most of these teachings are written as though addressed to men, they are applicable to both men and women. As a general rule, we should seek to find application for ourselves in all of the instructions that we find in the Bible, even though a particular teaching may be addressed to men or women or children in a particular instance. All right, enough of all of that. Let's dive in. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not murder. Jesus takes that commandment further to include not only the physical act of killing someone, but confronts the thoughts that can lead to killing another person. He says, anyone who's angry with another, anyone who calls another raka, anyone who calls another fool. Raka was an Aramaic word that meant something like empty-headed one. Fool is a Translation of the Greek word moros, which we get our English word moron from. What is Jesus getting at? The point Jesus is making is not about these particular insults or name-calling. I mean, if that were so, it would be pretty easy for you and I to comply with this commandment, since my guess is, is that no one in this room has probably called another person racha in the past year, or maybe ever. I've never used it to insult anyone. It's just not in my, you know, vocabulary of insults that I like to take and use. Jesus is talking about the way we see other people, the respect or lack of it that we have for other people. When we call someone a name like Raka or Fool or a thousand other choice insults that can quickly come to mind, we're diminishing the value of that other person, making them less than human, and elevating ourselves to a place that we don't belong. We are all made in the image of God. We are of equal worth to him, possessing an eternal soul. And when we insult and diminish another human being, we are claiming high ground that is only God's ground to ever have. C.S. Lewis expressed it this way. He wrote, 
there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. The next time we're ready to pull the trigger on another person with a well-chosen insult, guaranteed to diminish them to the level of an insect, let's remind ourselves who we are really talking to. There are no ordinary people. Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister. James 1.19, James wrote, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Our being angry is often an indicator of our feelings of self-righteousness. We're angry because we feel that we have been treated unjustly somehow. My rights have been violated. How does that person treat me like that? Who do they think they are? Who do they think I am? I am no mere ordinary person. We're righteous, and we're rendering judgment about who's right and who's wrong, taking a position that only God should have in our life. Our anger, which is inspired by our sense of self-righteousness, doesn't produce the righteousness that God wants in us. Our righteousness is self-centered. It looks out for me. It's limited in its understanding. It can't see all sides. It is not impartial. It's not just and fair. Submitting to God, trusting in Him, obeying His word, trusting Him to handle any paybacks there might be, being a peacemaker, this is what grows His righteous character in us. Verse 23 Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then go and offer your gift. Jesus goes even further now. Not only are we to not murder, not only are we not to diminish the value of our fellow human beings, not only are we to avoid self-justifying anger, but Jesus considers our reconciliation with others so important that he tells us to reconcile with others before we come to worship. 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus is telling us to settle disagreements and problems quickly. Don't put them off. Don't let them grow and fester. He gives us this example of how a failure to seek reconciliation could really backfire on us in a very 
horrible way. We could end up losing our case before the judge, having to pay the price, even being thrown into prison, perhaps. To summarize the big ideas having to do with reconciliation with others that we find here in these verses, one is make reconciliation a priority, he says. First, go and be reconciled. Do it before coming to worship, he says. Make it a priority to reconcile with people. Second, take the initiative in seeking reconciliation. Go and be reconciled with them. Settle matters quickly. Don't wait for them to make the first move. We make the first move. We initiate the reconciliation. And third, it's never too late to seek reconciliation. It's never too late. Even while you're on your way to court, seek reconciliation. One of the lies we tell ourselves is, oh, it's been so long now. I mean, I've let it go for too long. It's never gone too long. It's never too late. The next passage where Jesus compares the old and the new, verse 27, says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments says, You shall not commit adultery. And the common way this commandment was understood was the forbidding of sexual relations by a married person with someone other than their spouse. Jesus, he expands the understanding and application of this commandment by saying anyone looking at another person other than their own spouse with lustful intent to have sexual relations with them is committing a sin, is already committing adultery with them in their heart. I want to say Jesus' teaching applies to both men and women. Jesus' teaching applies to both married and unmarried people. Jesus' teaching applies to people of all sexual orientations and gender identities. See, before we even get the car out of the garage, so to speak, this commandment limits all of us, no matter how we identify sexually and so forth. We are all expected to exercise self-control to keep our thoughts in check and to confine our activities to within the boundaries that Jesus gives us. Everybody. See, in a similar way that he does with murder, Jesus addresses the issue of the heart here, doesn't he? The thoughts and the motives rather than simply the physical act. Jesus puts his finger on the origin and the birthplace of our sin. He wants our heart in submission to him. Everything else will follow from that. He wants our heart in submission to him. Everything else follows. continues on this same subject line. He says in 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body 
than for your whole body to go into hell. Stop! Before anybody does something tragically foolish, put down the knife. I want to make sure you understand that Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation here. He is not advocating self-mutilation here. He's making a point using an exaggerated exaggerated example not to be taken literally. A person without an eye or a hand can commit sin as readily as any other person. So the removing of some body part is not the solution to our problem, is it? Jesus wants us to understand and embrace the importance of pursuing holiness and having a right heart with the Lord. He's trying to get us to see how important this issue is. Verse 31, the next comparison. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This teaching is closely related to the one before it since sexual unfaithfulness can lead to divorce. In the Old Testament, divorce was allowed There was disagreement, though, about the circumstances under which divorce was allowed. One school of thought allowed divorce only if adultery had occurred in a relationship. The other school of thought allowed a man to divorce his wife for any good reason, which could include something as minor as his wife habitually burning his dinner. As you can imagine, this second school of thought was the most popular and the one that people tended to side with, especially if they wanted a divorce. Jesus, he permits divorce if all attempts at reconciliation have failed, recognizing that the damage done to a marriage by adultery can be insurmountable. but it's not a simple thing, is it? The issue of divorce and remarriage is going to come up again in the Gospel of Matthew when we get to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. And we are going to wait until we get there to get into more detail about this topic. But today, I want to say this. First, God's ideal and intent for every marriage is that it lasts a lifetime and there never be a divorce. God sees marriage as a lifelong relationship. However, this is a sinful, broken world that we live in. So God has permitted divorce to take place. What is an acceptable reason for getting a divorce? Adultery is mentioned as a reason here in the text we're looking at this morning. Are there other reasons? Well, uh, if we consider the full scope of the teaching of the Bible, it would suggest that there may be other reasons. I'm not in love anymore is not 
an acceptable reason for divorce. I'm not happy is not an acceptable reason for divorce. If you've been married before, been divorced, and you're now remarried, I want to say the, the past can't be changed, it can't be undone. Uh, you're not expected to keep punishing yourself for whatever has taken place in your past. I want to encourage you to choose to obey the commands of Jesus now and going forward. You are a new creation in Christ. Live like it. Love and care for the spouse that you have now and be faithful to the marriage that you're in now until death do you part. The ending of a marriage should be the very last resort. Every other option should be thoroughly tried and considered first. This is the heart of what Jesus is teaching us, and this is the heart that we should have about our marriages. Verse 33, the next comparison. says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The Old Testament teaching about oaths was pretty simple. It said, if you make an oath, keep it. That's what the Old Testament teaches. By the time of Jesus, though, people had made vows and oaths and promises of all kinds, swearing to keep them by all kinds of things, by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by your own head, and so on. There was a whole elaborate system for making and breaking oaths with a hierarchy of things to swear by, to make your oaths binding, what kinds of oaths could be broken and how they could be broken and so forth. Rabbis spent considerable time sorting through, well, that, that's a legitimate oath. You, you want to get out of it though, huh? All right, well, let's see. If you do this and this, I then you can be free from that oath. Jesus' response to all of that is this. Don't swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes and no. He said to, put, to get rid of all of the nonsense about making oaths and vows. Make what... He said, say what you mean and mean what you say. Say what you're going to do and do it. Keep your word. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. James taught the same thing in his letter in James 5.12. 
says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. James got that from his brother, by the way. His half-brother. Now, some have taken Jesus' teaching here to an extreme and teach that signing legal written contracts are sinful. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. If you're doing business with someone and it involves a written contract between you, fine. Sign the contract, keep the commitments that you're making that are in that contract. I really don't understand why people feel the need to go from one extreme to the other all of the time. Some people love to keep putting themselves under some kind of legalistic burden. Jesus came to free us from all of that. Don't dream up new ways of burdening yourself with more legalistic stuff. Be free. And stay free. Verse 38 is our next comparison. It says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In this passage, Jesus is making reference to teachings in the Old Testament, like those that are found in Exodus 21-24, Deuteronomy 19-21. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth were part of the law of retaliation. The The original intent of this law was to protect people from receiving excessive punishment that didn't fit the crime and to prevent self-appointed vigilante-type action, that punishment should be determined and administered by the authorities, not by yourself. Jesus teaches his followers to not live by these rules, instead to choose the path of humility, kindness, and grace. He gives several examples of how this plays out in life then. Uh, First, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. To be slapped on the right cheek was not simply an unprovoked hit. To be slapped on the right cheek, it was a terrible insult in the ancient world. Jesus tells us to not trade insult for insult or barb for barb or hit for hit or whatever. Next, he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. For many of the poorer people, the clothes that they were wearing were the only clothes they had. And their cloak also served as their blanket for sleeping at night. The Old Testament law actually required that a poor person's cloak be returned to them at the end of the day if they, so that they could have it to sleep in. That it was considered excessively cruel to keep their cloak and not return it to them by the end of the day. 
Jesus tells his followers to offer their cloak in addition to their shirt to the person who's suing them and wants it for collateral. Next, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Roman soldiers had the legal right to force a Jewish person to do work for them if needed. So when Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, it was an outrageous thing to consider. The Romans were hated by the Jews to willingly comply with this forced labor and continue to serve twice What was demanded of them was unthinkable. And yet this is what Jesus teaches his followers to do. And finally he says, give to the one who asks you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He teaches his followers to be generous and kind to the needy. Now, there's a lot to chew on in this passage, and it raises lots of hard questions about how to apply Jesus' teaching in our life, doesn't it? And I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm not sure how to even react and apply some of this stuff. When I read it, I go, I don't even know what to do with that. I don't believe Jesus is telling his followers to allow others to abuse them and to take unfair, unopposed advantage of them. If we observe Paul and Peter's lives, for example, in other places of the New Testament, we don't see them doing that. But Jesus is certainly teaching a nonviolent, humble, selfless, gracious approach to life that is unprecedented. And it is very difficult for us to embrace it. Only by the power and the grace of God working in us are we able to do these things. And his final comparison is in verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your neighbors and hate your enemy was the common teaching. Jesus teaches his followers to love our enemies and do good to those who don't deserve it. Otherwise, he says, we're no different than anyone else. He says, people without any commitment to or interest in God, they love their own families and friends, and they're kind to their own circle of people. Everybody does that. He says, we're to live to a higher standard than what is accepted behavior for everyone. Our Heavenly Father loves and shows kindness to all people, the deserving and the undeserving alike. As an example, he says, he blesses all people with his Son and his reign for the crops to grow. We're to be like our Heavenly Father. 
He's our example to follow rather than doing what everyone else is doing and behaving the way everyone else behaves. In the last verse of the chapter, it says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It really serves as a summary statement for all six comparison passages that we have looked at here today. The standard we are called to be living toward is our Heavenly Father's perfect holiness. And I mentioned earlier that Jesus, he doesn't lower the standard of righteousness and holiness to make it easier for us to achieve it, because that's not the goal. He wants us to be holy people, and he's working toward that end in our life. When we try to lower the standard of holiness so that we can justify what we're doing, we're in effect trying to earn our own salvation. We're trying to lower the bar so that we can get up and over it. That's not good. Instead, we're trusting in Jesus who has lived the perfect holy life. We're not trusting in our achievements of holiness. We're not trusting in the quality of our own goodness. We're seeking to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect because we're His children, and that's the way His children behave. At the same time, we're trusting in our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, who has rescued us from our sin and death and who's going to raise us up to be like himself. God didn't lower his standard of holiness so that we could meet it. He met it for us and changes us from the inside, giving us a new nature so that his holiness increasingly becomes who we are as we follow Jesus and as the Holy Spirit grows his life in us. See, what we've read here today, this is not a set of new rules for us to follow. It's not that Jesus came up with a harder set of rules that exceeds the expectations of the Old Testament teachings. He goes, oh, let's see, well, yeah, check us out. We're going to do even better. He's teaching us a different way of life. He's teaching us the character of his kingdom. And he's giving us a glimpse into the new character that he's building in us. We're becoming this. I want to close with this. Is it, are you a follower of Jesus? Maybe, have you been listening to this teaching today and you've been thinking, you know, I want to be like that kind of person. But you also know that it's way beyond you to do it on your own. You know enough about yourself and your bad habits and your selfishness to know that it's an impossible goal for you to reach. And I'll say, welcome to the club. 
I can't do it on my own either. I want to be like Jesus, but I can't pull it off by myself. I'm trusting in him rather than myself for my salvation. Jesus died for you and me as a sacrifice for our sins, and he came back to life on the third day to give us eternal life with him. When we put our trust in him as Savior, he puts his life in us, and we begin to grow to be like him more and more. If you want to have your guilt before God taken away, have the hope of heaven in the next life, and grow in the character of Jesus in this life, follow Jesus. And begin doing that with a simple prayer like this. Lord, I believe Jesus died as a sacrifice for my sins. Forgive me and give me a clean slate with you. Come into my life and make me into the person you want me to be. I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we look at this incredible standard of yours today, and in one sense, we're dumbfounded by the immensity, the perfection that is so far beyond who we are. And at the same time, Lord, we're reminded that this is who we're going to be. This is who we're going to be. You're making us this. What an incredible thing to look forward to. That we're going to be like Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning. Remind us of your grace and your goodness, Lord. Remind us of your promises that we're your children. You've called us to be perfect like you. And you put yourself in us to move us, to will us to be that. We ask for your grace, your power, your strength, your courage, Lord, to walk after this pattern that Jesus has laid out before us today. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.